Okay. Welcome, welcome everybody to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is the 12th of November. My name is Audrey Ann, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland, and I will be your host for today's study. Co-hosts are Maria F., Sewell, and Johan. If you have any questions during the meeting, please, con please contact either the host or the co-host by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G., will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer sessions which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to the previous week's recorded in the chat function, and the seventh tradition will also be posted in the chat. We ask if you can please make sure your microphone is on mute at all times during the study. And if you could also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. And I will now turn you over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you very much, Audrey. Thank you for your service. I'm so glad to be here. I am in the city of broad shoulders, hog butcher to the world, crown jewel of the Midwest in my birthplace, Chicago, Illinois, where it is a beautiful 36 degrees. I am freezing my tuchus off. And last night I went to dinner and uh, I was like an ice cube. I got in the car and before I got in the car, I thought I was going to pass out from pneumonia or something. It was cold. And I'm, I got so used to Arizona and it was just incredible, just incredible to be that cold again. It's been a long time since I've been that cold and today is, is bad too, but that's okay. That's all right. I'm here for a wedding, which is tomorrow. The Ducks game is tonight. So all clear thinking, honest, wonderful, forthright people will be rooting for Oregon against the evil Washington Huskies. And that game will start at six o'clock Chicago time. I will not get a chance to see some of it as I have some dinner plans. But anyway, getting back to the business at hand, we are here to study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're in chapter five. And last week, we looked at the ABCs. And let's take a rolling start into today's session by reviewing our description of the alcoholic. That is, that is on page 60. It says, our, it's the middle of the page, our description of the alcoholic. What is the description of the alcoholic? The description of the alcoholic is the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism. These are the chapters that describe the alcoholic condition. It is an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. And the three characteristics, other than the two traits of physical allergy, twist of the mind, are permanent, progressive, and fatal. Permanent, progressive, and fatal. The chapter to the agnostic, which is chapter four to the agnostic, we agnostics, that's the chapter to the agnostic. And our personal adventures before and after, those are the stories in the back of the big book, made clear three pertinent ideas. What are those three pertinent ideas? A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own life. What does it mean to be an alcoholic? What does that mean? Well, we just talked about it. 
It means that you have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. Your mind is searching for relief from the intenable pain that comes, comes upon you when you're not eating. That pain is very, very serious. And the brain, the ego says, I have to feel good right now. And the buildup of these emotions, boredom, happiness, anger, fear, jealousy, guilt, shame, remorse, all these various emotions come to the surface in the brain. And the brain will scream out for relief from that pain. So that when we look at food, we see very clearly that it was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. Food for the compulsive overeater is the solution to the problem. Now, if food is the solution, what is the problem? Again, the discomfort we feel when we're not eating. And that discomfort comes from the buildup of human emotion. Even though we're happy, I've eaten railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy when, I was, when things were going well for me. And since I'm back in Chicago right now, and I'm driving down Devon Avenue, and I'm driving down Dempster Street in Skokie, and I'm driving down all these various streets, even though the stores are different, the names of the places are mostly different, though not all, memories are coming back to me of what I ate and what I gorged myself on in some of these places as I drive around in Chicago. And so what I, what I see in my mind is a younger Harlan going crazy on food in these places. Can I remember what drove me into the food? Absolutely not. Do I remember feeling scared? Do I remember feeling happy? Do I remember feeling jealous? Absolutely not. But I often remember, here's where I used to eat this. Here's where I used to eat that and so on. And so it, the memories do come back to me. But food for the alcoholic was never the problem. It was, is the solution to the problem. And the problem is the way we feel when we're not eating. And we're going to expand on this in just a little bit. That probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. Money won't do it. Fame won't do it. Poverty won't do it. Racial profile won't do it. Height won't do it. Religion won't do it. Nothing is going to do it that is of this earth. And if you want to go back, listen to some of these names. If, you, if you're a little young and you don't know who these people are, Google them. Karen Carpenter, John Candy, Chris Farley, Fatty Arbuckle, Mama Cass Elliott. These people were at the top of their game. They had fame, they had fortune, they had it going on. And yet this disease came into their lives and cut them down and killed them in spite of every reason to live. Karen Carpenter was 34 years old when she died. 
died of anorexia. Her heart blew apart. She, her esophagus was destroyed. Mama Cass Elliott was a young, young woman when she died. And she died at about 400 pounds. The President William Howard Taft, he was so large. Now, he couldn't get elected dog catcher today because of his obesity. But he was so large that he could not fit in the bathtub that was provided for him by the White House. He had to have his bathtub sent out from Ohio because he couldn't fit his rear end in the bathtub that was provided by the White House. How embarrassing must that have been? And so that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And we've tried it all from hypnosis to operations. Now, I'm not giving you an opinion on these things. Please don't. I'm not giving you an opinion on these things. I'm just citing some of the things we've tried. Acupuncture. Some of the ladies that when I came in in 1979, one of the big things in Chicago, maybe not just Chicago, but this is all I knew at that time, the ladies used to go to doctors and have the urine of pregnant women shot up their butt. And that was supposed to kill their appetite. I don't think it worked. Based on what I saw, it did not work. Hypnosis, all these various, having your uh, jaws wired together, which is so dangerous, but having your jaws wired together was another thing that was quite prevalent when I first came in. You'd see people coming into the meetings and they would say, hi, my name is Debra, I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'd like to share a meal. And that's what they sounded like because their jaws were wired together. Guess what happened when they undid the wire? They went right back and started eating again, because that's not a solution to that problem. That God could and would if he were sought. That we have to have a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. All I have to be willing to do is believe that there is a power greater than myself. There is nothing in what I just said, and there's nothing in this book that says you must believe. All it says is you must be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And if you're willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself, that the book and I assure you, you are on your way. Nothing more is required. And that we will work on that relationship with our higher power throughout every day for the rest of our lives. The main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if it's the main object of the book, it better be the main object of my life. So we're led to page 60, and we're going to skip down here, and we're going to begin today with the first requirement. That's at the bottom of page 60. We're just about to describe the defects of character, which we are going to be utilizing 
in steps four, five, six, seven, 10, 11. And that these are the defects of character. But before we begin, the first defect of character that we're going to describe is selfishness. And I'm going to talk a little more about that in just a minute. But before I begin, I want to remind all of us that the reason that we need these defects of character to operate our lives when we're in the disease is because we cannot tolerate the unwe, the discomfort the pain, the searing, searing emotional state that we, that we live in when we are not eating. And that the most, dis, the most uncomfortable situation of my life is when I'm not eating. When alcoholics or drug addicts or compulsive overeaters commit the unspeakable act of suicide, they always do it when they're sober because when they're drunk, their, their relationship to the world is altered to the point where they're quite comfortable. But alcoholics will do themselves in uh, almost 100% of the time when they are sober because the discomfort of what we see, we are born into a world that we do not necessarily feel a part of. By and large, most of us, most of us are scared when there's no external emergency. We don't quite fit in. We're at odds with the world that we were born into. We feel great pain because we feel that the world is just not sticking to our script. And we convince ourselves that if the exterior world, the people in it, and the world at large would just acquiesce to our demands at that point, we would be emancipated from this constant urge to go to Carl's hot dog stand on the south side of Chicago, or we would we are emancipated from that urge that we have to go and gorge ourselves with food. I'm not a South Sider, but that's a shout out to someone else. So the bottom, I'm not from South Shore. I'm from West Rogers Park. But the bottom line, we had the Red Hot Ranch. But the bottom line is the discomfort that we feel is only interrupted by the food. And for about nine or 10 seconds, once that food is in my mouth, I get what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. What is the effect? The effect is a sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating that food. And for about nine or 10 seconds, the world is a beautiful, groovy, most excellent, fantastic, comfortable place. And I feel a part of the group. I feel a part of the world. If someone really wanted to know how I was feeling, I would not tell them. But if they came up to me in any stage of life and said, Harlan, how are you doing? I'd say, I'm scared to death. And they'd say, what are you scared of? And I'd say, everything. And they'd put me in dunning. 
Dunning is a place in Chicago that's a mental health hospital. They would lock me away. If they knew how angry I was, how jealous I was, how scared I was, how unsatisfactory the world is in my eyes when I'm not eating, they would run away from me because I would scare them. And so I found that a little food could make me feel better. And my brain locked in on that like a like a radar, like a it honed in on it, like it locked in on something that was prey that could help us survive. And it was a coping mechanism that my brain used over and over again to end the pain. So I went on diets from the time I was five and six years old. And people said, don't eat so much. You'll feel better. Whoa, they were right. Wow. When I don't eat so much, man, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel jealousy better, crushes on girls better. I feel my own inadequacy better. I feel like killing myself better. I feel like killing you better. I feel all these various things much, much better, more acutely. And the food came around and I put a French fry in my mouth. And those feelings went away. Everything negative abated. And now I've used this description before, but if you think back to the Wizard of Oz and you look at Dorothy and she's in Kansas and it's a very gray kind of sepia kind of environment, very gray, black and white, nothing special there. And all of a sudden she lands in Oz and when she lands in Oz, what happens? Everything is technicolor, deep, rich reds and blues and purples and greens and whites and blacks and orange and all these various colors come alive. That's what happens to me when I eat a Nestle's Crunch Bar. When I eat a Nestle's Crunch Bar, the world goes from gray, black, and white to technicolor in an instant. I don't even have it in my mouth yet. I've got the Crunch Bar in my hand, and I'm unwrapping the Crunch Bar, and I smell it, and it's headed for my mouth, and I'm drooling, and my blood pressure is up. And the blood is pumping through my system from excitement. And now I've got it in my mouth. It's not down the hatch yet. I'm just chewing it. And I feel better already. That's a tough one to, to give up, isn't it? That's why diets don't work for most of us most of the time. Because Dieting treats the symptom and it doesn't treat the problem. Dieting doesn't make the world seem like a better place, but working the steps does. The steps will do for me 
a little slower, but they'll do them for me. What a Carl's Jr. French fry will do for me instantly. It instantly gives me a sense of ease and comfort when I work the steps so that the world is in color and I'm comfortable in it and I don't see the need to gorge myself with food no sane person would eat were they in my shoes. Not after everything that has happened to me, not after being an object of ridicule, not after being so morbidly obese that I deformed my body permanently, not after going on my first date at 35, not after being the fattest kid in the school, not after being physically and emotionally emasculated by this disease. No sane person would continue to eat the foods that I ate after all those things have happened. But yet I did because I am insane rather than sane. Sanity is wholeness of mind. Insanity is partial mind. No sane person would do to themselves. If you burned yourself by touching a hot iron, would you ever do it again? No, because touching a hot iron does nothing for you and only does something to you. But the food did something for me, not to me, for me, that nothing else could do. It made the world a beautiful place. So let's go to the bottom of 60 and let's see first who we are, because without that stock in trade inventory of who we are, we don't know how to move forward. There are people here who have maybe a few different things here and there, but all of us have demonstrated selfishness. And the first defect of character that we're going to describe here is this selfishness. Now, the word selfishness has changed a bit since this book was written. The book is written in 37 and 38, and it was published on April 10th, 1939. Now, I want you to picture that we're on a Caribbean island someplace. And a supply, and there's no restaurants, there's no nothing. It's just you on the island by yourself. Uh, no, excuse me, you and another person. Sorry, you and another person. Get those dirty images out of your heads. Okay, you and another person are on a Caribbean island, and a supply of food and pharmaceuticals and clothing and all this stuff lands from a helicopter. And you want it all for yourself. You don't want to share it with the other person. That is selfishness then, and it is selfishness now, because that means you want everything for yourself. But in the 1930s, the word selfishness had a little bit of a different additional context. 
And the way that they used it is he's very selfish means he wants everybody and everything to stick to the script. We have a script in our head. And that script that we have in our head, when it is stuck to, still doesn't give us the satisfaction or the comfort to avoid eating, but we want that script stuck to. So when we use the word selfish, we are talking about the script in your head too. Let's go to the bottom of 60. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life on, run on self-will can hardly be a success. By this time in the book, I better be convinced that any life, my life run on self-will is hardly a success. I came in here, I was morbidly obese, beyond morbidly obese. I was broke. I had never been on a date with a girl in my life. I was an object of ridicule. People in public places would laugh at me. Children would point at me and laugh at me. I was ostracized by people to my face. I lived a life of physical and emotional discomfort. I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand. My, the body, the, my ankles would swell beyond reason. I had dime and penny size ulcers in the back of my calves where the pus used to run out. I couldn't get in a car. I couldn't get out of a car. I had no money. I wrote bad checks. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I had fissures, cracks in the skin on the bottom of my feet. It was like walking on glass. I had no clothes that looked good. I couldn't feel good. I couldn't look good. And yet I did not want to surrender to this process because I'm going to handle it myself. That's the ego. That's my ego. So if the first requirement is that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success, I have to look at my life and say, is this really what I think God had in store for me when he created me? Now, some of you come from beautiful homes and some of you come from beautiful environments and some not so much. But do you feel the way you thought you'd feel when you were a little boy or a little girl? Do you feel inside the way you know you could feel? If not, stay with us. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We wanted to be good people, but we kept hurting ourselves and hurting others, even though we really didn't want to. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. Selfishness is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, 
If only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Now, this is something that we convince ourselves of. That if everybody would do as I wish, you over there, you stop picking your nose. You over there, stop drinking. You over there, marry me. You over there, give me money. And if everybody would do that, then everything would be okay. No, it would not. And we never take into consideration their feelings, their wishes, their desires, their dreams. We just want to impose our will because that's what we want. Because we are tempestuous in our ego-driven madness because we don't feel good the way things are. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. No, it won't. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, he is more likely to have very traits. Now, that's a good description of selfishness. The fact that we want the world to stick to our script. Now we're going to examine the character defect of self-seeking. And what I did, I did this about 40 years ago, 43 years ago. Remember that paragraph, the first requirement on page 60? Next to that paragraph, I just wrote the word selfish. And next to the next paragraph that we're going to read, the one that says what usually happens, I write the word self-seeking. Because a lot of people ask the question, Harlan, what's the difference between selfish and self-seeking? Selfish is the script we have in our head. Self-seeking are the things we do to get people to stick to that script. These are the actions we take to get the world to dance to our music very destructive. Let's go to page 61. What usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. So even though we think we're good directors, we're really not. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. So we get that victimitis, don't we? Self-pity, victimitis. He decides to exert himself more. Instead of exerting ourselves less, we exert ourselves more. In other words, we've got a losing poker hand. But instead of betting less or, or, or uh, folding, we want to bet more. Because we're sure that our queen high hand is going to win when it won't. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. So these are the, these are the personas we adapt. I can be the nice guy or not. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. What are the four things we've talked about that all alcoholics and addicts, compulsive eaters, Alanons, what do we do? What are the four things we do constantly? We lie to ourselves and others. We assign blame. We keep score in our relationships 
and we fight battles that don't exist. We are sure that other people are more to blame. And who normally gets the blame? God. And that's why most of us come in here with a chip on our shoulder about this God idea because God didn't help me and he screwed me over. And that's what we believe when we come in here most of the time. And who else gets the blame? Others and ourselves. And that turns into self-pity, self-loathing, self-doubt. And we hate ourselves because we were never able to do what we see others doing or we think we see them doing. It's not true. Arranging the world to their liking. We look and compare and we compare ourselves to other people. We compare our disintegrating insides, scared to death insides, angry insides, destroyed insides to their seeming calm and put together outsides. And we compare and we despair because we will never compare when things are going well for us. We will never compare ourselves to people who aren't doing very well. We look at these people and we say, oh, how lucky he is. Oh, how lucky she is. Oh, how fortunate they are. I was born and raised here in Chicago. And when I was a younger man, I used to know of a hill in Schaumburg, Illinois. And that hill used to be a garbage dump, to tell you the truth. And every once in a while, you'd see a man running up and down that hill, dragging tires behind him that were attached to his waist by chains. And his name was Walter Payton. And he would run the hill up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And he'd have to drag the, the tires up the hill and run fast enough to stay ahead of them on the way down. And he would work out. And he would practice. And people would come to Soldier Field on Sunday and say, and this is when I was not a vendor yet, uh, anymore. I was just a, uh, a fan. Oh, how lucky he is. Look how well he can run. And look how, look how good he is at football. I wish I was that good at football. Well, he worked at it constantly, incessantly. He worked his butt off to get to where he is, was, was at football. He's dead now. He worked not just by running up and down the hill. No, I'm talking weights and practicing and drilling and doing everything he needed to do to be the greatest football player up to that point. He worked hard, but yet we sit back and say, oh, how fortunate that person is. Oh, how lucky she is. Oh, look at him, how lucky he is. Look at them. Poor me, poor me. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they have an expression. 
pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. Pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. Oh, <laughs> poor you. Tony Soprano used to say, <laughs> poor you. But the bottom line is we blame others. Usually it starts with God. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he really not a self-seeker? There's the defect named in the, in the paragraph, self-seeking. Somebody who is looking to get their way. Somebody who is looking to arrange the world according to their liking. Even when trying to be kind. Yes, I'll kiss your butt. Just do what I want. Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? What is a delusion? A delusion is something that appears real, but is not. It appears real, but it's not. Some people are psychotic delusional, and that is a clinical diagnosis, not something that we deal with here in OA. But we have a delusion that if the world would just do what we want it to do, we would not eat the way we're eating. And how many of us have said this? If you'd stop nagging me, I wouldn't eat this way. If you just get me this, I wouldn't eat this way. If you buy me this, I'll stop eating that way. I'll go on a diet. How many of us have tried to manipulate others in that way? Sexually and non-sexually, we are manipulators. We are manipulators. We want what we want. Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? We're about as opaque as a, as a window. We're very, very transparent. Gee, I wonder why Anna Nicole Smith was with that 90-year-old guy. Wasn't that interesting that of all the people she could have fallen in love with, she fell in love with a 90-year-old multi-billionaire? Wow, that was, really, that was really fortunate for her. Wow, that guy had one foot on a banana peel and one in the grave. That was really something. And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? People see what's going on. They're not stupid. Hardest room in the world to lie in is this room because you can't BS a BSer. And we are BSers from day one. We are BSers. <clears throat> is he not even in his best moments? a producer of confusion rather than harmony. How many times did I put my hands to something and try to fix it when I just made it much worse, much worse, much, much worse. And that's the story of my life. And yet I will ignore that and I will still try to fix things if I'm in my disease to this day. Bottom of 61. Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. They still do. He is like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, 
politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave the outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments or our self-pity. So here we are again in this paragraph, you can justify errant nonsense. There are murderers on death row that will tell the camera if the camera is there, I did it because this guy did this and this guy did that. And the famous last words, what choice did I have? You had a lot of choices. You chose to do the murder. You chose to do the evil deed. That's why you're going to be put to death. But right to the grave, we're going to blame others. I don't have to look at death row murderers. I can look at myself. I was killing Harlan Grabowski. And I was injuring my friends and the people who loved me and cared about me from the time I was a child. I was hurting them. And I just knew in my mind that it was somebody else's fault. More often than not, I blamed my poor mother. My mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities, three-year-old, two-year-old, screaming, raving lunatic, and a pretty together person. And I blamed her for everything. I went out to her grave yesterday, Waldheim Cemetery. It's just outside Chicago. It's uh, the old, old Jewish cemeteries that are out there. And I went to her grave and I said, I'm so sorry for being the lousy, stinking son that you got. And I looked at you my whole life, Ma, and I blamed you when you were not to blame at all. <clears throat> I hope she heard me and I hope she forgives me. I kind of think she did. But I was a lousy son just a lousy, lousy son. And I blamed her for everything. And she loved me. She was, she was nuts. There's no question that she, she was nuts, but she did love me. And she did the best she could with what she had. I wish I could have seen what I see now. And that is she did the best she could. My dad was an immigrant. My dad did not master the language. My dad was not rich by any stretch of the imagination. If it wasn't for Social Security, I think we would have lived under a bridge. But we made it. And he did the best he could with what he had. He, he eked out a living. We never starved. We had a roof over our head. We had the things we needed. We had electricity. We had whatever. We had what we needed. And they loved me. And yet I blamed them because I wanted Rob and Laura Petri for parents. And I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. Very different. Very different. Page 62. Selfishness, self-centeredness. That we think is the root of our troubles. 
Let's go to page 570 for just a minute. In the fourth edition, we're going to be in Appendix 3. And this is not something that most sponsors point out to people. This is not something that most meetings will talk about. We don't talk about Appendix 3. We talk about Appendix 2. We don't normally talk about Appendix 3. And I want to point out something in Appendix 3 that I think is pertinent to my growth and my understanding of who I am and what I am. And on page 570 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it simply says, Dr. W.W. Bauer, broadcasting under the auspices of the American Medical Association in 1946 over the NBC network set in part. Now, this is the part that I think you should highlight to the end of the paragraph. Alcoholics Anonymous are no crusaders, not a temperance society. They know that they must never drink. Now, this is very important. They help others with similar problems. That's why you need to sponsor once again. In this atmosphere, why do we need to sponsor? In this atmosphere, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself. I'm going to read that sentence again because it is key to the understanding. They help others with similar problems. In this atmosphere, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself. Learning to depend upon a higher power and absorb himself in, work, in his work with other alcoholics, he remains sober day by day. The days add up into weeks, the weeks into months and years. Let's go back to page 62. While you're flipping back, what is Bauer saying here? That this excessive concentration upon self is very much a part of the disease, that there's never going to be enough, that it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be the way we want it to be. And in this tempestuous discomfort that we develop over our lives, the only thing we know to do is to eat certain foods or certain amounts of foods so that for 10 seconds, you don't have to feel the pain. Are you looking for God? Look for him in the face of his children. Get out of yourself. Be of service. If you're looking for God, search for him in the face of one of his children. And you will be rewarded for that. You have God's word, my word. And the word of the National Football League, as well as the word of Carl's Jr. on the south side of Chicago, that if you look for God in the face of one of his children, you will find him every time. Walk to God. He'll run to you. It works. Let's continue. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles driven by a hundred forms of fear, 
self-delusion. What did we say is self-delusion? It's what we believe that's not true. A delusion is something, <clears throat> excuse me, it appears real, but it is not. Self-seeking and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. The word seemingly is key. They do have provocation. We have injured them. We have insulted them. We have lied to them. We have tried to manipulate them or have manipulated them, and they strike back. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. We want what we want. We are selfish people. Now, you may be listening to me on a podcast, or you may be listening to me now and saying, I'm not selfish. I dedicated my life to my mother, my husband, my wife, my children, my grandparents. You may say, I did everything for them. That is often a form of manipulation. I'm going to do everything for you. Now, here's what I want you to do for me. Quid pro quo. You do this and I'll do that. How do we know that the action we take to help others is not selfish? Boils down to one word. Results, or you could say expectations. If I help you, and I have an expectation that you're going to do right by me, that's not help. That's manipulation. If I help you and I let it go, that's help. I hope that's clear. I hope I'm explaining that correctly because it's 36 degrees here and I'm about to die of pneumonia, thermal shock. No, but the bottom line is if we are helping and we have no expectation of result, that's fine. But if I'm helping you and I have a expectation that you're going to do right by me, not so much help, it's manipulation. Page 62, middle of the page. So our troubles we think are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. It's one of the most quoted passages in the book. People will talk about self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness we must or it kills us. God makes that possible. What's behind my selfishness? Ego. Ego. What's the only thing bigger and stronger than my ego? God. I am not stronger and bigger than my ego, but God is. I must have God's help. I must 
or that will kill me. God makes that possible. You're not a believer in God, power greater than yourself. You're an agnostic, you're not sure, just be willing to believe there's a power greater than yourself. You're an atheist and you do not believe in a religious deity, just be willing to believe that there is a force of nature or a force of something that is greater than yourself. There are agnostics and atheists in this program that recover beautifully. All that's required is a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Notice his is capitalized. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centers as much by wishing or trying on our own willpower. We had to have God's help. <clears throat> I must have God's help. And how do I get God's help? I work the steps. I work the steps. And I must sponsor. And I must work the steps quickly. Because I need to get to that point where I can sponsor others as quickly as I can. I need to get up to that point as quickly as I can, because it says on page 89, nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. I can't work with anybody until I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. So I have to have that awakening so I can get that guarantee. Very, very important. Now, we're almost out of time. I'm just going to remind you before I turn it back over to Veronica. This time I wrote it down. Um, the OA birthday is coming. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you are on the line. When I'm on my computer, I can always tell because it says it. The OA birthday is coming the 13th the 14th and the 15th of January. This is a magnificent convention. And it is a convention that will change your life for the better, I promise you. It is in 